All right, we have been taking up the subject of the Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, communion, all various expressions of the same, the same thing. <clears throat> this ordinance, which we believe as Baptists, as Baptists, we have only the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I have said repeatedly, uh, since we had started in this matter of the Lord's Supper, that we do not claim that we exclusively observe this, this ordinance. We are not claiming that that is a Baptist distinctive and that we only observe it. But there are, there is this uh, the nature of it that we hold is something for Baptist distinctive in that we hold in, in the words, in, in the specific words of Kroll that we've already left, uh, read. He said it, it is a spiritual feast. And we emphasize that as Baptists, <clears throat> we see no merit in it, salvific. There's no salvific intent or design. It is totally commemorative, but it is more than just a commemoration. It is a, it is a, an ordinance which exercises us spiritually into the presence of our Lord. And uh, I took up as one of my channels of, for, of lecture on this subject, I took up to share with you <clears throat> on more, uh, at least from the, on the basic level, <clears throat> from the church members' manual, William Crawl, <clears throat> the he has already addressed. We have already addressed from his writing, page one sixty four, the nature of uh, of this this uh, ordinance. Then Crawl takes up. Uh, also, the purpose, this is the category, this is the way he breaks it down. He, he brings out the, the nature and then he brings out the purpose. He says the purpose appears to be twofold. First, the ordinance has public and general bearing of the highest importance to the continuance of the Christian religion in the world. It is a standing, public, unimpeachable witness of the genuineness of the New Testament writings and of the truth of Christianity. So, by the observance of the Lord's table, we are bearing a testimony to the world without. Basically, if I could put it in my own words, we're bearing the testimony that God's church is not out of business. <laughs> we're still here. We're still doing the work of God. He says it's impossible to explain the existence and origin of this ordinance, but by admitting that it has come down from the apostles and was instituted by the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed. It thus stands before the world 
from age to age an infallible witness of the expiatory, expiatory death of Christ and the truth of the story of his sufferings. So there is this public, public, general function of this ordinance. It is commemorative. He says, this do in remembrance of me. It's, it is, it calls us to remember his teachings. And it commemorates his sufferings. It proclaims and publishes these truths. As often as you eat this bread, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So these things are commemorated and they are perpetuated and this supper gives testimony to all of them. The remembrance of the death of Christ should not only be refreshed in the minds of Christians, but some memorial of it should ever be kept before the world. I think it's one of the great tragedies in the modern era is that most churches have all but ceased performing this. I mean, some churches do it once every quarter. That's in our day. That's actually quite frequent, uh, considered to be frequent, because most churches have reduced it to once a year, and some churches not even that. So they they've all but done away with this ordinance, and because of it, there is a loss of testimony to the world. I mean, I I know I'm not using his exact words, but his his point is that that there. There is a testimony here to the world, basically saying, look, the church is still here. It's still here. It's still active. It's still functioning. And he says there is no explanation for this. The world would have to acknowledge there is no explanation for this, except that it be that the the truth of the ordinance, that this Christ came, that he has a church, and that he is building his church, continuing to build his church. There's no other explanation. It proclaims and publishes these truths, Paul says. And it is a solemn avowal and a united expression of the love for Christ by each individual believer and by the church as a visible body. It is his love which is commemorated and proclaimed These considerations are sufficient to show its importance. The continuance of the Christian religion is identified with this ordinance. And so, I don't think we uh, sometimes don't think of that aspect of it because for us it's so very personal and it's so very, uh, because we commune with our Lord in that breaking of bread meal uh, but but there is this aspect of it too that it bears testimony to the world that Christ's church is still here he's still among his people he's still working he's still building his church and we bear this testimony to the world every time we break bread and uh, it's I think so important so very important that we bear up that testimony. But its purpose is, of course, he says, for its general purpose, 
uh, it's first, it is commemorative, that is, and it shows to the world that his church is being uh, built. And and then on a personal, secondly, on a personal level, uh, it, it is a solemn avowal and a united expression of love for Christ by each individual believer. Not for the world, but for the believer. This communion. Purposes. The purpose. And there are other purposes also, of course. Uh, Kroll is just dealing with these two principal purposes. What I think what I would have put down as the leading purpose to me, my first purpose, my, my, in order of importance, let's put it that way, in order of importance, the purposes of the uh, Lord's Supper, I would have put what Paul says when he's talking about it there, he says, let every man examine himself. So self-examination. The breaking of this bread calls for the believers in that congregation to examine themselves in a, in a way and to an extent that is not, we, of course we do that in every service. We do that in every sermon. We should do that in all, we should, there's always a call for us to examine ourselves. But the breaking of bread is a specially unique time for a dare I use a modern term, deep dive, that we do a serious examination of our hearts. And Paul Paul addresses that. says, let every man examine himself. And so self-examination to me is, in terms of order of importance, is the first most important purpose for that breaking of bread. I hope that we as a church know those things. I'm not teaching you something new. I'm simply reiterating. And on the Lord's days that we have breaking of bread, I hope you have spent time that week before, that day before, doing an especial uh, examination of yourself. And be sure you come to that table with nothing, nothing that you know of that you can and he talks about, you know, if we have, if we've offended, if we've brother, done our brother wrong, leave, leave it, come back, leave it and set it right with your brother and then come back. We, we should examine ourselves and make sure that to me is a key and principal purpose in this breaking of bread. It's this, this self-examination among, among the saints. But then thirdly, he takes up on page 166, the obligation and perpetuity of this supper. He says its public bearing and importance render the obligation to observe it peculiarly sacred. It is the visible showing forth of Christ crucified for the sins of men. It connects us by an unbroken chain of witnesses with the disciples around the last paschal table and with the weeping spectators around the cross. By it, we have more than recorded proof that the nails were driven, that Jesus was lifted up, that the spear was thrust into his side. We have a standing significant ordinance whose origin cannot be disputed. 
a living symbol transmitting the same facts from witness to witness from the apostles all the way to us. And then he says, and I had this as a quote, the death of Christ is the most momentous event in the world's history and its expiatory nature the most important doctrine to be sustained. And it is the Lord's Supper testifies of the one and teaches the other. So the obligation is perpetual. The message is perpetual. The gospel is perpetual. And so this ordinance is perpetual to propagate and testify of those gospel facts. That this command was intended for all Christians and so understood is evident. Now he's touching on the fact that, and he uses Acts 2, 42 and chapter 20, verse 7, that it is to be continued till the end of time is plain from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So there is the perpetuity of it and there is the obligation of it. Uh, I don't know, I've never heard, maybe some of you have, and if you have, you can share their testimony with us. I've never heard anyone uh, attempt an explanation for why they don't observe the Lord's table. I've never heard any preacher offer any explanation for why their church doesn't observe it or observes it so infrequently. I don't know what their thoughts are or what their reasoning are, but I know that it's it's to be perpetual in the life of the church and it's oblig- there's the obligation of every church to do this. Uh, I have heard an excuse offered that, well, if you do it too frankly, it just becomes, it just becomes mundane and it loses its meaning. It shouldn't. I would say that if that happens, it's something is wrong with the way it's being observed. It's not the frequency. It's the method. If we're just running through it as some kind of a exercise, some religious exercise, then yes, it's going to become very, very mundane and very trite. If it's being observed with all the gravity that it deserves and that it ought to be, then that will not happen. Uh, but other than that, that particular argument, I have not heard anyone make any other attempt as to explain why they don't observe the Lord's table. Of course, you do understand, we understand here in this church, that one of the problems is, (laughs) or should be, that the Lord's table of necessity dictates church discipline. Uh, Unless you're just going to throw it open to the world at large and to every heathen, uh, the presupposition is that the table is being set for the covenanted body. 
and that covenanted body has mutual accountability to one another. And so this table becomes the focal point at which all of that doctrine finds its expression. And so I think most churches, that's all too messy for them. They don't want to get involved in that. They don't want to be engaged in anything like church discipline or anything like oversight for one another. And so it's easier just to throw the thing out and just don't do it than it is to come to it and fulfill the obligations that it presupposes. So I don't know. Maybe you've heard other things. I haven't really heard. Then Kroll, we can, you can share those if you'd like later. Uh, Kroll then moves number four, and I said to you, this is all very basic. We're just covering basic ground here. Uh, we can cover some uh, uh, controversy later. <laughs> but Kroll goes to number four, which is to discuss the benefits on page 167. Benefits of it. He says, in addition to the public bearing of this ordinance, that is its effect on the public, which I just discussed, it is the medium of conveying personal blessings to the community. This is a benefit. Luke 22:19. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This wine is the sign of the new covenant founded in my blood. The ordinance then is the token and pledge of the benefits of Christ's death to the believer. This is my body, he said, which is given for you. The flesh of Christ is eaten and the blood is drank in the same sense that sin is washed away and the sign rightly used involves the thing signified. On the contrary, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And then I have this statement. The enlightened, humble Christian receives great spiritual blessings in this sacred ordinance. The Savior meets him at his table. To nourish his faith, his hope, his love, and zeal. To impart comfort and satisfy every holy desire. You know, if someone comes to fix the plumbing in your house, you're not likely going to set them down to a nice meal. Someone comes to Amazon to deliver a package to your door, you're not likely going to set them down to a meal, nice meal. We understand that to sit down at a table prepared for someone bespeaks a very special relationship. And so the Lord's table it has that function that we are there to meet with him. This is the table he has prepared for us. 
and invited us to partake with him. So this is a very, very uniquely spiritually enlivening experience. It builds our faith. It encourages our hope. We have this special time of communion with him. And this is another thing that is a tragedy in the modern, even in the places where it is observed. It's taken on so fast and so just with a rhythm that's just a fast pace. We do this, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. And, and there's no time for spiritual reflection. There's no time for the fact that we are here to meet with our Lord. And uh, so it's it's observed wrongly. And uh, then there's no spiritual blessing. But it's intended to be a spiritual experience. He goes on and says, This ordinance therefore can never be a means of grace to the unconverted, but its effects on them, if they presume to partake of it in their spiritual blindness, must be to increase that blindness and add to the greatness of their condemnation. This is, as I said, a spiritual function and a time to meet with our Lord. And because of that, if unbelievers participate, they should be made uncomfortable. They should be uncomfortable. They ought to be uncomfortable. <laughs> because as I said, this is where we meet with our Lord. If he is not their Lord, then that should bring discomfort to them. And then fifthly, Paul takes up <clears throat> the inevitable subject the qualifications for the communicants. He says, the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. Period. Full stop. Baptists have always believed this. This has been a Baptist distinction. The Lord knows not to say that there haven't been Baptists who had the name Baptist that did not believe this. But I'm saying this has been a Baptist distinctive of those who are Baptist by conviction. The Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. We don't have the liberty to get us a little breaking of bread kit and run around the world dispensing the Lord's Supper. You know, let's meet at the coffee house and we'll have the Lord's Supper together. <laughs> no. This is a church ordinance. The command of the Savior is drink ye all of it. Who is included in the word ye? The true answer to this question settles the qualifications of the communities. First then, evidently the disciples, it was first, of course, the ye that he was talking to was the disciples that were there at that table. Most immediately, that's the answer, those disciples. But then, all who shall become such, till he come. All those who become disciples of his, till he comes. These present, those present were, beyond question, all baptized believers, John 4, 1. Therefore, the precept extends to such only 
baptized believers. Here another question arises. In whom is the power vested to decide who are qualified? <laughs> now we can open a can of worms here. But let's just hear what Kroll says. In the same hands, evidently and necessarily, as to the duty to decide who are entitled to the previous ordinance of baptism and in what baptism consists, which duty, as is everywhere shown, is committed by the Savior to each church. Those whom the church admits to the table, it declares to be disciples and endorses them as such before the world. So, who has the authority to decide who's allowed and who isn't? The church. The church has that authority. So, the church, each individual congregation, must settle those questions. And of course, they settle the question, hopefully, based on their understanding of the scriptures. Ultimately, the authority comes from the scriptures. But it comes through the church. The church decides who is eligible for baptism, and the church decides who is eligible for breaking the bread. So, whatever mechanism and whatever means through different times in history have been used to that to that end, the principle remains the same, that the deciding, the qualifying, uh, deter sorry, the determining body for qualification is the church. Therein is Christ's authority. And then, I'll close with, he talks about an invitation to the table. Uh, and this goes to the subject, we'll not cover it today, we'll, we'll close, but it does raise the subject of open communion, closed communion, close communion, Here's what he says. The ordinance being intended for Christians in the church family capacity. That word's hyphenated. Church family. Church family community. Capacity. All the members in good standing not subjected to discipline are entitled to participate. Now this is his position. I agree with the position, but I'm simply saying there, and we can talk about it in the next lecture or time to come, there are different views here. But his view is that the ordinance is intended for Christians who are in a church family capacity, we would say, in covenant with the local church. And they must be members in good standing not subject to discipline. As they only are amenable to the discipline of the church, they are the only ones who may 
claim admission as a personal right. If others besides the members are admitted, it is by invitation. Consequently, require a uh, consistency requires that invitations be given only to members in good standing of churches of the same faith and practice. And so he thereby expresses his view uh, as being that of being a close, what we call close community. He believes that a church may offer an invitation to a visitor to partake with them under the condition they are members in good standing of another like-minded congregation. That's called close communion. They're not closed, but it's not fully open for just anyone. It is open to this individual by invitation from this church and they may come and partake, and that's called close communion, and apparently that's the position Carl takes. But he makes this statement, and on the flip side of that coin, no person has any cause of complaint if a church gives no invitation. We've had experience with that problem in the early days of this conference. We've had some who were terribly offended that they were not extended an invitation. Well, Kroll says no person has any cause of complaint if a church gives no invitation. It's no reflection on that person's Christianity. But this is a church order, a local church ordinance. And only the local church can extend an invitation. And if the local church hasn't enough information or doesn't know enough to be confident that they're doing the right thing and they want to err on the side of caution and they extend no invitation, no one should have a complaint about that. There's no reflection on their, on their faith or on their walk. It's how the church functions. I appreciate that statement that he says on page 169, no person has any cause of complaint if a church gives no invitation. Every church has an undoubted right to omit them at all times if, in its judgment, the purity or the peace of the church will be best promoted by doing so. And every church should do so whenever its invitations may become a cause of contention or of jealousy. It is customary in some churches to invite any members of other churches who may be present and wish to participate. That's what we call open communion. To exhibit their testimonials to the pastor and deacon for their approval previous to the service. In others, a public general invitation to all members of sister churches is given. So there's varying varying means of exercising what we call uh, open communion. Okay? Those are different things. This church, in case you don't know or haven't thought of it or in a while, this church practices closed communion. That means no one outside the body of discipline, it, no one who is not subject to the discipline of this church 
is invited to the communion of this church. That's a closed communion. And that guards the sanctity and peace of the congregation. It has no reference, no injury, no intent of harm to anyone outside this congregation. That's how we do it within ourselves in this congregation. Now, there can be lots and lots of discussion of all these things. Uh, anybody have any questions or comments they'd like to add to these thoughts? This is just a general, this has been just a general treatment of the subject of uh, the Lord's Supper, the breaking bread, the communion of the saints. Brother Gormley, what? He did not want to have anything one day. Okay, good. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I did say we'd hold the controversies to the next day. <laughs> Monday, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, if it if it applies to the Lord's Supper, then why not apply it to preaching and praying and singing and <laughs> everything else? To do it too frequently, it becomes mundane. You mentioned that some some places avoid any issue by avoiding the presence itself in that certain church. Others, like a couple of large churches we have in our county, avoid it by growing and building churches that they have to be uh, one of the large churches that are in residence. They have to meet, I think, once every month. And probably, uh, I think, once a month, and all four of their churches start on Saturday night. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's no longer it's no longer a church ordinance. Ordinance that is, with regard to local local body, it is church in a great big broad mystical sense. Anybody who thinks they're a Christian, I can only speak in my experience on my circle. Anyone who has been part of them or familiar with them knows that they have a tendency towards the mystical utter disdain for anything within the schedule. And so they often neglect along those lines to resist mundaneness or also probably a uh, probably coupled with a incorrect view of the ordinance itself. Something that's not as reverential as it should be. And then it is the basis, in my view, on many other problems, including the whole way the culture is ran. There are a lot of times it relies solely on at the discretion of the pastor. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. And because of that, I've even seen the baptisms go for some time not happen because they're put out of the mind or whatever. 
And as you say, waiting on the which, whoever's the presiding pope at the time to decide that it, that they should or should not have it. In which case, really, technically, we could say it ceases to be a church ordinance and, and becomes a man's ordinance to dispense as he will or won't. And the church doesn't speak to the matter at all. Reduce our membership. As to the matter of communion and its latitude, if you allow me, I will quote myself from a footnote in the early pages of uh, Dr. Baldwin's work. Baldwin's statement with regard to prerequisites to participation at the Lord's table may strike an unfamiliar chord in most modern congregations. Right. While in his day, churches of virtually every denomination held unswervingly to the principle that certain biblical requirements were necessary prior to an individual's coming to the Lord's Supper. Two hundred years later, many, if not most, congregations and denominations acknowledge few, if any, restrictions to participation. Some assume a position akin to agnosticism leaving it entirely to the subjective decision of each participant. While some encourage even those with no profession of faith to freely partake, which is what Luke is referring to yeah. a moment ago. Yep. Which I think is shameful, especially I've had occasion to be a number of Catholic meetings, and to this day, of course, at every Catholic funeral, they have mass. And the fathers tell, some of them have in fact, the fathers tell everybody before they do receive the communion, this is 
if you are in the communion of the Holy Catholic Church, you can discern uh, the body of Christ and the Virgin Mary. Nobody else is allowed. Yeah. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. And the mutual respect. It's a shame that our enemies put us to but it's a shame. Again, Baptist distinctives. Baptist distinctives. In fact, you know, that's really I've been thinking recently a lot about that that, that phrase is such a Today is is considered a blight. I mean, you don't even want to use those two words in the same sentence. They don't want to be distinct. They don't want to be known as a Baptist and have anything that distinguishes them from everybody else. We want to obliterate all distinctions. And so they're really, they would be ashamed of the idea of a Baptist distinctive, (laughs) which is a real shame. But of course, look where we are. This is where we get from having no distinctive. It is an interesting note, though, that George was specific to Scottish Presbyterianism. They generally took the position that they would observe the Lord's Supper only once a year in their church. But it was observed. Whatever you think of, of the question of frequency, it was observed by them with the solemnity uh-huh. that we have utterly forgotten. Yes. In our day. Yes. Um, True. And if you read the accounts of their the, the preparation that was done by the people and by the ministry. In coming to that table, you, you, you would find it completely foreign to anything that, that, that might be done in the church today. So, yeah, yeah. While we may bemoan the, the fact that they practiced so infrequently, we certainly appreciate their method. preparations. Their preparation and method. Well, there's much to learn from our forefathers. I'll also note as well, historically, that if you read the account of ministers, and I refer specifically to accounts in biographical sketches, more specifically from sketches that were written by itinerant ministers uh, in the uh, Massachusetts Baptist Missionary Magazine and later the American Baptist Magazine, you will find again that same solemnity, a, a, a prominent feature that's recorded by them again, 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 and they see themselves of the, the Lord's table in, in Community. And, and again, they may have had no state of ministry, and this minister would come in and, mm-hmm. and observe uh, the Lord's supper with them, perhaps once, once a year or even, or even less. But those seasons 
supported and, and failing with a season of great celebrity, mm. much wisdom, and much joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that, that's a foreign, completely foreign concept to, to our modern church. Which bespeaks the fact that they're their heart and their mind, their focus was not on the external activity, but on the spiritual communion with Christ, which is where the emphasis should be.